I want to ask you to turn to Revelation chapter 1, but before we read the verse in Revelation 1, I want to read some verses out of Mark chapter 10. And I want to bring these two passages together. And while you're turning there, let me thank you for the privilege of being the pastor of this church for the last six years. It is a, uh, in no uh, small way the, the greatest six years that we've ever had in our lives. And it has been because of you and because of your love and because of your prayers, because of your graciousness and your goodness and the sweet spirit uh, that you have and the way that you have loved us. And you have seen uh, both of our children come to know the Lord uh, since we've been here. And so this place holds a very, very special place in our hearts. And uh, I count it a privilege to be here. It is one I never take lightly. It is one I never presume to think that I deserve it or that I am owed it, but it is one that is given me by the grace of God, and I pray that I'll be faithful in fulfilling uh, his call as long as God gives me this pulpit to preach from. Mark chapter 10, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to him saying to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. You ever done that? <laughs> I have. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said, Grant that we may sit in your glory, one on your right, and one on your left. James and John were an interesting pair. I tell you, John came a long way in the time from that situation to the time of the book of Revelation. Here's what they want. Lord, we believe that if you'd put us in charge, everything would be okay. Have you ever said that? you ever thought that on your job? Well, if they just let me run it for a while, I could figure all this out. You know, I know what the problems are around here, and if I could sit at the right hand of power or at the left hand of power, if I could sit in the glory and in the kingdom, I tell you what, I could figure out how to shape this thing up real quick. You know, the pull of power and prestige and prominence is in all of us. It's a part of our fallen nature. It's a part of that part of us that wants recognition and wants our plaques. And James and John said, Look, Lord, we've been to all the seminars. We've learned all the language. We've attended all the study courses. Now how about letting us be in charge? Let us sit with you. Uh, we're the movers and shakers in this outfit. We're the guys who know how to make things happen. Let us be with you in your kingdom. And <laughs> Jesus says... That's not for me to give. But I tell you what, guys, if you want to be great, be a servant. If you want to be great, be humble. But don't exalt yourself. Don't put yourself up on a platform. But if you want to be used in the kingdom, be a humble person. Now, I, I tell you, I get phone calls every now and then, and I, I get resumes, and people send me resumes and say, hey, if you know a church, would you recommend me? You know, I've never gotten anybody's resume with their failures on it. Have you ever seen one? I've never seen a guy's resume. I went to this church and killed it in six months. <laughs> I also have never seen a resume come with one of those little pictures, you know, like you get in those little photograph booths that it takes five quick pictures and about half the time your eyes are closed. You know, they've always got an Olin Mills picture and everybody's cleaned up and touched up. And even after they look at the proofs, they kind of turn to the photographer and say, is this the best you can do? He says, well, what I work with is the best I can do. You know, we all like to touch up our resumes and we all like to touch up our pictures and try to pretend that we're better than we are or that we deserve more than we have. 
James and John had that problem. It's nothing new to us and it's nothing new to our culture. But you see, it's not our successes that God uses the most. It is our failures. It is the times when we've been in the wilderness, those moments when we've struggled and nearly fallen. It's in the failures, in the times when humility has overwhelmed us, when we've been broken before God. Those are the platforms on which ministry is built. It's not the offices we hold or the committees we serve on or the things we do or the recognitions we have that give us ministry. What gives us ministry is God ministers to people out of our hurts, not out of our blessings. You see, I never learn anything on mountaintops. I only learn things in the valley. I had a gentleman walk up to me after the early service and he said, you know, he said, the richest soil is always in the deepest part of the valley. And that's true with God. The richest soil to grow your life spiritually is sometimes in the valley of the shadow of death, in the deepest moments of your life, in the moments of despair and in the moments of hurt and in the moments of pain, that God does something in you and God does something ultimately through you that you can't get glory in. And God uses you in miraculous ways. Now, pick up 60 years later. John is on the Isle of Patmos. He's exiled. The church is being persecuted. He's all alone. His family and his friends are gone. And here's a man who has been through dangers, toils, and snares. And he's by himself on this island, and he writes Revelation 1 and verse 9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Same John, different attitude. Sixty years have done a lot to let those words of Jesus ring in his ears about what greatness is all about. And notice he introduces himself as John. Here's a man who has been given privy to the most intimate moments in the life of our Lord. Here's a man who has stood and watched the glorification of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Here's a man who has watched Jesus in his moment of agony in Gethsemane. Here's a man who stood all alone. The other disciples were gone at the foot of the cross with the mother of Jesus. He has been there at the highest point and at the lowest point in the life of Jesus. Personally, he has seen it with his own eyes. Here's one who has been given a great revelation. He has received the revelation of Jesus Christ. He has seen what is to come and what is ahead even for us as believers in this day. The words that John writes in the book of Revelation are as current and as applicable today as the day that he received the revelation. And you and I need to understand, John didn't get this and say, boy, I need to get my resume out and fill it in. You know, John, the one who revealed the revelation of Jesus Christ, called me for prophecy conferences. He didn't say, boy, I tell you what, now I have hit the big time. All those other, Paul's gone, Peter's gone, the rest of the disciples are gone, but I got the revelation. No, notice what he does. He simply introduces himself as John. 
Not Dr. John. Not John, the high and holy apostle. Not John, personal and intimate friend of Jesus Christ. Not John, writer, author, preacher, witness of the transformation, the only guy who stood by the cross. But John. You know, I, I, I don't like titles much. I, I, I'm not comfortable with Dr. Cat. I'm not either comfortable with Brother Michael. I, I'm just Michael. You know, because I understand what people do when they do that, but I'm just Michael. And John is just John. But here's where he makes his identity. He says, Your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance. Your brother. Here's the same man who had said, I want to sit at the right hand. I want to be with Jesus in his glory. And now he compresses that response of Jesus into one statement, and he says, I'm a fellow partaker of the sufferings. John understood in those years that passed that ministry is not in glory and in positions and in honors. Ministry is in walking down dirty roads with hurting people. Can I tell you something that is very important for you to remember? Greatness does not come through exaltation. Greatness comes through tribulation. Greatness does not come when we are exalted. Greatness comes in those moments when we are broken, when we go through tribulation, and the road of the kingdom is paved in tribulation. So what do we have in common? Well, there's a common participation in something. Notice that all three of these nouns are bracketed together. There is one preposition and one definite article. In the tribulation and kingdom, and perseverance. Now, if you want to go back to the image that John probably has in his mind from Mark chapter 10 where he said, Jesus, you be in the middle and my brother and I will be on the right hand and the left hand. John, under the inspiration of the Spirit, writes and he puts the kingdom in the middle, central. And on one hand is tribulation and on the other hand is perseverance. What is it that we have in common? Not all of us are preachers. Not all of us are ministers. Not all of us are Sunday school teachers. Not all of us have the same jobs, the same backgrounds. We're not all white. We're not all black. We're not all uh, natural-born American citizens. We don't all live in the same kind of houses. We don't all like the same kind of cars. What is it that we have in common? Well, there are three things. First of all, we share in the kingdom. Jesus said, unless you repent... You cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. He said, unless you become as a little child, you can't see the kingdom of heaven. What is the kingdom of God? It is the central thing that brings meaning to every act and every word of Jesus. It is the presence and rule of God in a life and ultimately over the earth. It is God's authority in place. It is the realm in which His will is obeyed and His word is submitted to. The kingdom of God is a place where He is King of kings and Lord of lords. We share in a common kingdom. 
those of us who have come to faith in Christ, not by walking an aisle or by being baptized or by having people come down and give us the right hand of Christian fellowship, but because there came a point in our lives where we knew that we were sinners and we could not save ourselves and someone needed to save us and that someone was somebody and that somebody was the Savior, Jesus Christ, and we said, that's what I need. He said, welcome to the kingdom. He said, you are a part of the kingdom now. The kingdom that begins on earth, that began with the presence of Jesus, behold, the kingdom of God is at hand and will culminate in a new heaven and a new earth and the ultimate reign of Jesus Christ. Now, we're a part of that. We share that in common. You're my brother. That's what John says. John, your brother. Guess what? We're all related. Now, you can pick your friends, but you can't pick your family. That's a brutal thought coming up on the holidays, isn't it? (laughs) We're stuck with each other, so we better learn how to get along. We're part of the family of faith. We have been adopted into the family of God. We have been engrafted in Christ Jesus. We are blood-bought related. We are related by blood in Jesus Christ. We share a common kingdom. So somebody can pick on my friends, and that's one thing, but somebody picks on my family, that's something else. We're all family. Doesn't mean we all like the same things. Doesn't mean we all do the same things. Doesn't mean we all have the same interests, but it means one thing. We come together and in our diversity, we become unified around the cross of Jesus Christ. That is what brings us together. Now, not only do we share in a common kingdom, but we share in tribulation. Notice that he talks about the tribulation. Now, the road to the kingdom is a road of tribulation. And when you travel it, you travel it by perseverance. Tribulation and persecution are a part of life. While we do not understand much about persecution in our culture and in our society, we're going to learn more about it. Our world is increasingly post-Christian in its mentality. The day of the Judeo-Christian ethic is gone. There have been more Christians martyred around the world in the 20th century than all other centuries combined. Millions of believers have lost their lives in the last 95 years because of their conviction that Jesus Christ is the only way. By the way, there are no shortcuts and there are no bypasses on this road. Everybody has to travel the road that Jesus traveled in the kingdom. And Jesus traveled the road of tribulation. Now, we like to talk about the power and the abundant life, and that's all good and glorious, and I'm grateful for it. But you hear people pray sometimes, Lord, I want to know you in the power of your resurrection. And they stop. The only problem is, Paul, when he says that, says, I want to know you in the power of your resurrection and the fellowship of your sufferings. Now, there's a long line of people signed up that want power. The line is real short in the people that want suffering. But it comes with the territory. And we ask sometimes, God, why don't you eliminate all of this? 
Why don't you take away tribulation? Why don't you just wave a, wave a magic wand and, and make it all go away? It's because there is something that we learn in tribulation that we do not learn any other place. There's something that we learn in the valley. There's something that we learn at the crossroads of adversity. There's something that we learn when we're going through trials that we don't learn any other time. Most of all, we learn something about ourselves. And then we learn something about God. And God uses those times to empty us of our pride and of our self-sufficiency. I got to thinking about this, and the Lord has been stirring this message in me uh, this week, and I, I've been very uncomfortable with it and just where it needed to go. But I, I, I began to think about how do we identify with tribulation. And then I began to think of Egypt. You know, Egypt is a barren, barren land except for the Nile River. And in the valley through which the Nile River runs is some of the richest soil on the face of the earth. And it is rich because the Nile overflows its banks and deposits the sediment from the depths of that river bank onto the soil which produces good crops. Last year we had a flood. I don't know if you heard about it, but uh, last year we had a flood. Now, I, I usually, uh, when I get to play golf, I play golf at a golf course on the east side of town, and, and that golf course was underwater. You could see about this much of one flag when the waters were at their peak. And I heard people talking, the golf course is ruined, it'll never come back. There's the water, so it'll never come back. And you used to go out there before, when I first moved here, you'd go out there and it was like hitting off concrete. I mean, it's just like hard pan, and you'd, you'd hit a golf ball and you could break a club. Now the soil is soft and easy to hit through and the grass is greener than it's ever been. You know why? Because when the flint flooded, it brought up rich deposits that had settled in the bottom and brought them out onto the soil and now everything's greener and now everything grows better because there was something that had to be brought up and in adversity, it brought beauty. You see, God allows floods and tragedies and tribulation to hit our lives sometimes because he's trying to bring up something that he sees that needs to be deposited into our lives. Something that will make us more like Christ. Something that will produce more of the image of Jesus Christ in us. Now tonight we're going to look at Malachi chapter 3 where it talks about Christ being the refiner and how God refines our lives. But what we're talking about this morning is these tribulation times. Now, why does it come? Notice in verse 9, the last part, because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, the tribulation that I'm talking about and that John's talking about here is not, you know, your kids having coals and flat tires and, and uh, somebody running a grocery cart into your car at the grocery store. That's, that's not tribulation. That's just living. That's part of being on this earth. The tribulation that he is talking about is because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 13 that some would fall away because persecution would arise because of the Word. Now, there is a tribulation that comes because of the Word that tests us and tries us. And it is not your cross to bear 
to have a cold or to have asthma or to have migraine headaches. Your cross to bear, biblically, is that which comes into your life because of your relationship with Jesus Christ. It is that which comes on you and attacks you and presses against you because you have taken a stand on the Word of God and for Jesus Christ. Now, there are all kinds of Christians who don't have any problems. They may be in union with Christ, but it's very superficial. But I like what Jack Taylor said a number of years ago. If the devil's not bothering you, it's because you and the devil are going in the same direction. See, the enemy never bothers anybody that's not bothering him. But if you have tribulation because of your faith, if there are attacks that come on your life because of your faith and because of your love for Jesus Christ, then welcome to the family. They're going to come. Your family will not understand your faith. Your friends will not understand your faith. You'll be, people will confuse what you're trying to do. They'll think that you're being unreasonable or that you're being too hard and steadfast when you say Jesus Christ is the only way. All kind of things can come into our lives and tribulations come because God's trying to build perseverance in us. My sister-in-law uh, sat down with me uh, over the Thanksgiving holidays and uh, we began talking about some things going in her life and she said, oh, I'm just praying for patience. I'm just praying for patience. And I said, Tish, don't pray for patience. James says patience comes through trials. <laughs> don't wish anything else on yourself than you're already getting, okay? <laughs> I, don't want, I don't want to be that patient. I don't want to be James kind of patient. You see, tribulations come and they affect our lives and yet if we're going to follow the man of sorrows, we've got to walk the road that he walked. And he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He was misunderstood, misrepresented, ridiculed, scorned. He hurt physically. He hurt mentally. He hurt emotionally because he represented the Father to man. And we're also to share in a common attitude. I want to ask you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, because you see, tribulation has to do with our circumstances. Perseverance has to do with our disposition. All of us are going to have tribulation if we're following Jesus Christ. There are going to be wilderness moments in our lives. But not all of us have the disposition that God wants us to have. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul is going through that thorn in the flesh experience. And he's asking God to deliver him. Now, if anybody ought to know how to get a hold of God and get his prayers answered the way he wants them, it ought to be the Apostle Paul. He prays three times, Lord, take this thorn away. And God says no. Lord, take this thorn away. God says no. Lord, take this thorn away. I've got ministry to do. I've got things that I need to do, places I need to go, people that I need to see, churches that I need to establish. Lord, take it away. And God says in verse 9, My grace is sufficient for thee. Now, there is only one adequate provision for your needs today. And that is the grace of God. My grace is sufficient for these six words 
that if we ever made them a part of our lives, it would change the way we look at every situation that we go through. Now, I want you to notice the verse, because if you're going through tribulation right now, you need to understand what this verse is saying. And let's just go through it word by word. My grace. Whose grace is it? Jesus' grace. God's grace. Notice that God did not say the power of positive thinking is sufficient for thee. Don't worry, be happy. We'll get you through. He said, my grace. Not your attitude. My grace. Not your self-help seminars. My grace. Whose grace is it? It's God's grace. Where does it come from? It comes from God. Do I have to generate it? No. Do I have to create it and work it up? No. It comes from the resources of heaven, God's grace. Notice, my grace. What is it that God gives? He gives grace. Now, God is providing something for us in times of tribulation. It's not an escape hatch. It's a safety valve. The grace of God. My grace. You want to know what I'm going to give you in times of trouble? God says, I'm going to give you grace. Talk to a member of the church this morning, again, after their early worship service. As a husband and wife, both of their parents, their fathers, were in the hospital in ICU at the same time with heart problems on Monday. Both of them. I mean, they're just going back and forth. And here's what they said. I don't know how, but the grace of God was sufficient for that day. You say, well, is God going to give me dying grace? If I get cancer, is God going to give me the grace to get through it? Listen, God will give you the grace to get through what you go through, but He's not going to give it to you before you need it. And in fact, I said to this church member, I said, I bet about three days later you kind of fell apart, didn't you? And she said, yeah, I did. I said, that's because you didn't need that grace anymore. He'd gotten you through that moment. And all you had then was the grace that was sufficient for the next moment. God doesn't waste his grace, nor is he ever shortchanging us in his grace. In our tribulation, God says, I'm going to give you what you need. Grace. Now, my grace is sufficient. Notice when. Notice who, notice what, and notice when. When. My grace is sufficient. Not, there was a time in my life in the past when God's grace was sufficient. Or I know that in the future God's grace is going to see me through, but right now, in the here and now, God's grace is adequate for me now. Now, he says, my grace is sufficient not going to sell us short. It's what you need. But what's it for? It's for you. You say, now, Pastor, that was written to Paul. Right. Paul, our brother in the faith, who went through light and momentary afflictions. You see, 
what was written for Paul is recorded for you so that you would know that the same grace that got Paul through his thorn can get you through your thorn. You know what that means? That means that the grace of God is for the great exalted apostles that we look to and admire, and it's also for plain old vanilla B-flat Christians right here in southwest Georgia. That God's grace is the same, that God's grace is sufficient, that He never falls short, that He doesn't have favorites. Now, when did this grace come to Paul? It came on the darkest day of his life when he finally realized after approaching the throne of God three times and God said, I'm not taking the thorn away, but I'm giving you something to go alongside the thorn, and that is my grace. And when Paul realized that what was required of him was to persevere with a thorn until the end... I'm reminded of what Ron Dunn says, which is so applicable, and I've seen it true so many times, that good and evil run on parallel tracks, and they normally arrive about the same time. You know what comes when your tribulation comes? The grace of God. You know what comes when your adversity comes? The grace of God. Do you know what comes when your thorn pierces you and your heart? The grace of God. The grace of God comes with it. And so Dr. Havner said Paul learned that far more important than a trip to paradise or deliverance from a thorn in the flesh is to be able to prove the sufficiency of God's grace in strength through weakness. A daily walk with God rates higher on his scales than an occasional mountaintop thrill. Now, everybody's going through tribulation, but not everybody's going through it with perseverance. Again, I refer to a member of this church who the doctors have found cancer in three places in her body, who came into our offices on Wednesday afternoon with a smile on her face, and she said, God's either going to heal me or he's going to use me. You know, and I look at people like that and I understand what the grace of God is all about. But you know, not everybody perseveres that way. There are some people in our church, they get a paper cut, they want five staff members to come see them. They whine and complain and bellyache about, oh, you don't know what I'm going through. I got a paper cut. I could die. I don't have any Mickey Mouse Band-Aids to put on it. Could y'all come over here and do something for me? You know, it's amazing when you've learned to walk through your tribulation with God, you learn that you persevere with God. You and I all are going to go through tribulation. But not all of us handle it the same way. But if we share in a common attitude, we'll have the attitude of perseverance. Now, perseverance does not mean passive endurance. It's an active word. And what it implies, the metaphor implies a fixed attitude of bearing a heavy weight or a burden or pressure without being crushed by it. It is an active exercise of power 
to prevent crushing. Perseverance doesn't mean we sit back and just let it all roll over us. It means we are actively involved in standing up to the pressure of the moment. That we are resisting, that we are standing, that we are understanding that we are bearing a weight and bearing pressure, but we're not going to let it crush us. We're not going to let it destroy us. We're not going to bail out. So what does this mean? First of all, it means we're all on the same team. We're all suffering saints. And as I look out over this congregation week after week, and as we pray over names every Wednesday night of people who are hurting and suffering, I realize some things about our team. Some of our team every week is on injured reserve, but they're still a part of the team. A lot of our team, listen, a lot of our team plays hurt every week. They teach Sunday school. They serve an extended session. They work security. They minister. They call. They visit. Not because they're feeling on top of the world, but because they're fellow partakers in tribulation. And it's a good thing when the team learns how to play hurt. But there's no room on the team for people to stand on the sidelines and say, bless you as you suffer while I just do whatever I want to do. We're all a part of a team. Secondly, we all need the same attitude, and that's the attitude of perseverance. But in addition to that, we need the attitude of standing alongside those who are suffering. You see, if we have the same attitude, we can never say, well, they're not in my age group. I don't know them very well, so I don't feel responsible to minister to them. No, you see, they're a part of the family. They're a part of us. And if they hurt, we hurt. If they rejoice, we rejoice. When they get bad news, it's bad news for our family. If they ask for prayer, we do it. Why? Because they are a part of us and we need the attitude that says, I know you're persevering and I'm going to stand alongside you. Because you see, you're going to need them to stand alongside you when you're going through your tribulation. And one last thing, we all have the same resource. He says it is in Jesus. Have you thought about it? Our resource is the great I am. Our source is that we abide in Him and He abides in us. Our boundary for living is that we walk in Him. Our blessing for living is that we have every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. And our hope for living is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now listen, all of us are going to walk through dark valleys. That's not optional. All of us are going to go through difficult times. We're going to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We're going to walk through a valley of suffering and trials and tribulation. But here's the key. What resources have you stored up in Christ Jesus in your life, in your heart, and in your mind 
that prepare you for the days ahead. Because you see, it's only what you and I store up that gets us ready for the long, cold winter of adversity. You see, you're going to expend every resource that you have in and of yourself when you're going through a hard time. And the only thing you've got to draw on is what you've stored up. If you wait until you get in the middle of the adversity to draw on something, you're going to find your tanks empty. There is a promise if you persevere, and it's found in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 17. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name. Now, we don't have time to get into that whole account of that church in Revelation chapter 2, but let me just summarize it this way. You get hidden manna and you get a new name. When you're going through tribulation and when you persevere and you're a part of the kingdom, God feeds you in ways that you've never imagined. And God has resources at His disposal to feed you with things that other people don't even see and in ways that other people cannot even understand. And He gives us a new name. What's that new name? Well, we're a child of the King. We have conquered because of Christ, death and hell and the grave. Have you ever thought about this? That the things that men fear are death and hell and the grave. And everything you have to fear has already been conquered by Jesus Christ. So God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. I wonder, is anybody in this room going through tribulation? You having a hard time? Feel like the bottom's about to fall out? Wonder if you're going to make it around the next curve? Hoping that you could get something today to just get you through to the middle of the week or maybe get you through to next Sunday? Is there an ache in your heart that you come to church with every week and you don't really share it with anybody? You don't bleed all over the furniture, but you have a hurt in your heart. There's a fear. There's an anxiety. It's a bad report from the doctor. It's a loved one who won't come to Christ. It's a prodigal child. It's a prodigal parent. It's a grandchild that doesn't care about the things that you care about. It's financial trouble that's got you under such a load you don't know if you're ever going to get out of it. It's a constant debilitating disease that is a thorn you've got to live with for the rest of your life. It's not going to go away. Apart from a divine intervention of God, it's not going to go away. Any hurts? Any pains? Any sorrows? Any fears? 
bring them to Jesus. But in bringing them to Jesus, also let us share as fellow partakers in your tribulation. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. If today there are just some hurts in your life, some tribulations, some uncertainties, 